0: So we are picking up where we left off. Again, it feels sort of like a multi-part series within a series going through the book of Acts, which is the the story, uh, the history really, of the the mission of the early church, the first 30 years or so after Jesus rose from the dead, ascended uh, to rule from heaven. And so we pick up where we left off with Paul, the Apostle Paul. This feels maybe like deja vu. We pick up with Paul in prison. This is not uh, new. Paul is in prison And honestly, this has happened before, but it really feels like it now. It is Paul against the world, or so it seems. Paul is up against two really global superpowers at this point. He's up against Jerusalem and Jewish tradition, and he's up against Rome. The theologian John Stott describes Jerusalem's power being rooted in history and tradition, and Rome's power in conquest and organization. Jerusalem and this Jewish tradition stretching back two millennia, and the rule of Rome stretching three million square miles around the Mediterranean. And so the strength and power of Jewish tradition and Rome come down on one man, on Paul. And if that's all we consider, that that Paul was on his own, he was a a rogue guy, John Stott paints this word picture for us of the, the likelihood of Uh, Paul succeeding, he says these world superpowers are like a steamroller, and Paul is like a butterfly. He doesn't stand a chance. A steamroller versus a butterfly. And so Paul seems like he is in a seemingly horrible spot. But what we've seen time and time again is that Paul is in the right spot. He has been commissioned by God. As we looked at last week, he could take great comfort in a God who is with him, who is for him, and who commissions him. Paul, in his letter to the, the Romans, to the Christians in Rome, he wrote this verse, very famous verse, Romans 8, 28. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And Paul's sitting in prison right now. What what does that mean? What does that mean that God works all things together for good? Well, Paul understands that this truth is so much more than situational, so much more than situational. God works things together for good, not necessarily for ease. And so if you are hearing this this morning uh, and you're thinking that maybe you can understand this idea in theory, but... It feels very different experientially. I hope that we all can come away with a deep understanding of how God can and does work for our good and his glory, even through and especially through the valleys of life. And so Paul's example that we see is a good reminder of God being absolutely in control. There's going to be a word we use a lot this morning, which is sovereign, sovereign. And so when we say the big word, sovereign, sovereignty, When I say that, what I'm talking about is God being in absolute control of everything. Every molecule, every cell. God is sovereign over all. And so we're going to see how Paul looks to a sovereign God who in the good times and the bad, he can rest in this hope that, that God is in control of his circumstances and that God is in control of all things including our our salvation, and so Paul takes that message and shares it with others, and so our big idea is kind of a collection of all of these ideas, and it's this. God is sovereign over all things, even your circumstances and your evangelism. God is sovereign over all things, even your circumstances and your evangelism. Now, we'll see this break down throughout the whole service, but again, God is sovereign. You can substitute that out. God is in control over all things, even your circumstances and your evangelism. And we're going to see this with Paul, and we're going to see how this is true for us this morning as well. So as we read our first section, we've got a lot of scripture to get through this morning, so buckle up. But as we read our first section, which is Acts 23, 12 through 35, I want you to see God's sovereignty. I want you to see how God protects Paul, and he works things together for his purposes. So let's read God's word, Acts 23, 12 through 35. When it was day, remember Paul was in prison. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food, till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush and so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, "Take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. Do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready, two hundred soldiers with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen, and go as far Caesarea at the third hour of the night, or 9 p.m. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and, and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. This is uh, the Tribune, Claudius Lysias writing a letter to the governor Felix. You'll see a similar format to actually how Paul uh, introduces his letters. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Now you'll notice there's a little bit of a stretch in timeline there from the tribune. Things didn't go quite that way. He was going to torture him first, and then Paul appealed to his citizenship, but uh, we'll give him credit. Maybe he wanted to keep the letter short. Uh, And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man I sent into to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before them, before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. And so through that whole section, I want us to consider God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. And there are times when God's sovereignty or his His absolute control is through extraordinary means. And there are other times where God's sovereignty, his control, you know, he works through the seemingly ordinary. This is kind of a little bit of everything. And this is a crazy scene. I should have maybe prefaced it a little bit, but this feels like a movie. There's like an assassination plot. Forty guys hiding. They say, all right, get the tribune to move this guy, and we'll jump him, and we'll kill him. We're not going to eat or drink until we do so. That's a Bold claim, bold statement, bold move. So we see this plot form against Paul by a group of Jews. They want him dead. Now, to dispel any thoughts of of confusion, they said they weren't going to eat or drink. That was their, um, their oath that they made. Now, there was kind of a little asterisk uh, in the oaths at the time. If you could no longer fulfill it, uh, you could break the oath. So we don't just assume that there's 40 guys that starved to death because they never got a chance to kill Paul. But still, to make an oath, that is a serious thing. They weren't just saying like, ah, I wish this guy was dead. They were having a plan. We will jump this guy and we will kill him. They're not happy with the way things have gone. Paul keeps on You know, sneaking away, he keeps on getting away in some way, shape, or form, and so they decide to take things into their own hands. So we see this plot fall apart, right? We see it fall apart. Now, we don't know uh, much, we don't know anything apart from this about Paul's family, Uh, but we learn here that the apostle Paul has a sister, and that sister has a son, and so Paul has a nephew. That's pretty cool if your uncle Paul was the apostle Paul, but still, there's this nephew, and he somehow hears about this plot to kill Paul, now, we don't know how old this nephew was. Scholars disagree either that maybe he was a, a young man. There's, there's the language of young man, But some of the language used, including when the Tribune kind of takes him by the hand, a lot of scholars assume this was, he was really just a boy. And any parents here understand that little ears hear everything. And so uh, likely, maybe, that this nephew of Paul was just kind of cruising around. He hears about this plot, and he says, man, i got to tell Uncle Paul. You know, people are trying to kill him. And so God uses this boy to hear this plan. He hears this plan. Uses this boy to go meet Paul in prison. Uses this boy to go get a Roman commander through the chain of command, through a centurion, then to the tribune. And he shares this news with him. And so, in a sense, this is the ordinary. This boy is just doing what makes sense. But in another sense, there is what appears to be some serious divine orchestration here that this boy uh, would, would play this role in delivering this news to Paul. But we see it doesn't stop there. God protects Paul by working through this Roman tribune, who up to this point has, has been a little bit more reasonable than some of the other characters in the story in being able to hear Paul and make an assessment that Paul's innocent, but he's, he's not a Christian. He's, he's far from being on Paul's side. But we see that God uses him. He sends Paul away by night in the company of hundreds of Roman soldiers. That's quite the entourage. Imagine being on that road, and all of a sudden hundreds of soldiers come by, toting around Paul. And so many of us in this moment, uh, looking at the, the kind of point here where I'm saying trust in God's sovereignty, the cynic in each of us may slip into thinking, well, sure, it worked out well. Paul was kept alive, but maybe it was all coincidence. Maybe it was all coincidence. I think it's helpful to consider this situation is standing directly in the shadow of where we finished our passage last week Acts 23:11 Remember it says the following night the Lord stood by him and said take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem so you must testify also in Rome So God has made it clear what his plan for Paul is that he's going to continue using him. He's going to continue having Paul be faithful all the way to Rome, and now we see this unfold through dramatic circumstances of assassination attempts and kids overhearing things and telling. It's just a crazy story, but we see God is at work, and so let's not have such a small view of God that when we look at, at his work in the world, we attribute it to sheer coincidence. Sometimes God does use the absolutely extraordinary Sometimes he works through the ordinary. He speaks to people through a burning bush. He speaks to us through his word. Extraordinary, seemingly ordinary. He parts seas for people to cross. He also opens and closes doors. God can and does use the miraculous. But he also can use children. He can use Roman commanders. He can use governments. He can use Soldiers, he can use whatever he wants to fulfill his purposes. And so in your own life, don't only wait for those burning bush moments. Trust that God is at work always. Things may not be going according to your plan, but they are going according to his plan. And this is easy to say, but honestly hard to rest in. We should have so much comfort to think God is in control of everything in control of everything, but we resist it for some reason. We don't trust in God's sovereignty. You may even reject God's sovereignty outright, right? Or maybe you understand it in theory, but you slip into equating health, wealth, and prosperity to God's plan. And when things don't go the way that you plan, your faith is shaken. Your faith is rocked. what hope there would be if if we truly grasp that God is absolutely in control. Many of us grew up singing that God's got the whole world in his hands, right? God's got the whole world in his hands. And that's a big claim. But it's totally true. What if we could truly rest in that truth, that God has got the whole world in his hands? I confess that church planting, this whole adventure of, a pandemic, of of everything that's been going on has really tested this in me. It is so easy for me to slip into pragmatism or slip into uh, really just trusting myself. I'm quick to say God is sovereign over all things, yet too much of my day is spent being anxious, worrying. And so pray with me that God would give you a peace beyond understanding. Read his word see his faithfulness throughout history, have a big view of God, and have a long view of God. So God's sovereignty brings Paul into situation after situation. Some we think, oh, that's best for Paul. Some we think, man, that did not seem best for Paul. But we see that Paul, time after time, demonstrates that we need to rely on God. We need to rely on God. we So here we see another defense, the next defense speech by Paul. Uh, In one part, it's a personal defense, but in another part, it's a defense of the gospel. And so trust in God's sovereignty and defend the gospel. Let's read on Acts chapter 24, and let's read the first uh, four verses here. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. So the high priest, some elders, and a spokesman or a lawyer, likely named Tertullus come to Caesarea, and they make a case against Paul to Felix the governor. And we see first some serious buttering up that happens here. They flatter Felix. They highlight his peacemaking, his noble service. Now, this is clearly just working to win his favor, uh, not only just because that's, he's talking about being brief, and he spends the first part of his speech just you know, buttering him up, but history tells a very different story about Felix. He was a wicked man, a wicked man. He was known for bribery. He, uh, his wife, who we'll hear about later, he convinced his wife to divorce her husband so that he could marry her. She was known for her beauty. He was just a wicked, wicked man. And a few years later, he would be, rem- be removed from his role for incompetence and just generally mishandling things. He was not a good dude, but they work to flatter him before they make accusations against Paul. So let's look at these accusations and we'll break them down. Acts 24, 5 through 9. So this is Tertullus saying this about Paul. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's tried to profane profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And so that's the that's the accusation. That's the the kind of verbal assault against Paul. So let's break down. What were the accusa- accusations that they were making? Well, first, they, they call Paul a plague. This guy's a disease. He's a virus. He goes everywhere. Right, and they say that he's stirring up riots. This would be probably the biggest uh, accusation uh, through the lens of a Roman perspective. Right? They want to maintain peace. They want to maintain uh, what's going on. They they desire peace. And they say that this guy, everywhere he goes, he's stirring up riots. So that's the first accusation. The second is profaning the temple. right? This is what we saw last week in the accusation. They said that he brought Gentiles into where only Jews could be. So he profanes the temple. And then the third accusation is that he's a ringleader. That. He's a ringleader of the Christians. He, they refer to Christians as uh, a sect of the Nazarenes. Uh, and what really that means is, I mean, they're a sect of, of what they're saying, Judaism, and they follow Jesus of Nazareth. This was likely a derogatory term uh, we see early in the Gospels. They say, what, what good has ever come out of Nazareth? Right. And so a derogatory term saying this Nazarene sect, they follow Jesus of Nazareth. And so Paul, he combats these accusations. He, he, he comes back at them, and he comes honestly, and he comes head on. Right, but he comes graciously, as we'll see. And he, too, he addresses Felix with respect, uh, but not in this kind of false flattery of his accusers. He pretty much says, well, you're a judge, uh, period. That's kind of the end of his, his claim. But let's see, uh, Acts 24.10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So Paul doesn't say he was a good judge. He just says, you're a judge, and I'm going to make my defense cheerfully. And this would be a terrifying moment. I, I, he's Think of the stakes here, but he, he makes these claims. This is his defense. Let's read verse 11 through 21. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way of Christianity, that they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day now there's a lot going on here, but let's let's break this down first, Paul addresses the accusations against him, he addresses the accusations. He says, first of all, I've only been in town for a little bit. How, there, there wasn't enough time for me to stir up any riots. But he says, and some of that, he was locked up. And the rest of the time, he was in the temple purifying himself. But he says, I wasn't there to stir up riots. Sure, riots start everywhere I go, but that's not because I'm stirring them up. It's because these crazy guys start stirring things up. Right? They cause a ruckus because I'm preaching the gospel. Right? But he says he was there to worship. He says he was there to give alms or a gift. Right? This is likely referring to that gift that, we see through Paul's letters that we've talked about before where he goes around to the Gentile churches and he collects money, he can, collects a gift that he's going to bring to the Jerusalem church. And so his motivations are anything but starting a riot. So he says, I'm not there to start a riot, and I'm not there to profane the temple. Right? He already, uh, we saw, I think it was last week, when the, the claim that was made it was really just speculation. Like, oh, we saw you hanging out with that Gentile. That means you must have brought him into the temple courts. He's clear in his defense that that he is not guilty of this thing. And then he actually cuts that part of his defense short. And he says, well, where are the guys that are even accusing me of this thing? They're not even here. Those who were originally making the accusation, the Jews from Asia, they weren't even present. And so it's like, uh, I, I mean, this was totally against Roman legal policy. Right? The high priest and his minions, they come, they make an accusation. And it's like they called a witness the courtroom scene, but the witness doesn't even show up. Paul's like, well, where are these guys? And then Paul's defense about being a ringleader, he, he doesn't explicitly deny, but he gives a clarification, an important clarification. And that clarification is that they weren't a rogue sect, but they had put their hope in God, that they believed what was written in the law and the prophets, what was written in the Old Testament. And so he says, we follow Jesus. He is the fulfillment of scriptures. We're not a rogue sect. We are we're the ones that are understanding the scriptures that point to Jesus. The fulfillment of it's not that that the Old Testament is Jewish scriptures and the New Testament is Christian scriptures. The, the whole book is Christian scriptures. And so that's what Paul's saying. Saying we're not a rogue sect. We we follow Jesus. He's the fulfillment of these scriptures. And so Paul's defense was in part a personal defense, in part a personal defense, but not what we might expect. He defends himself against these false accusations, but with the primary goal of defending the gospel. His defense clears his name from judgment. He says in verse 16, he says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So he says, I'm innocent. But he clears his reputation not for his own clout or reputation, he clears his reputation for gospel proclamation. And so there are a few lessons I think we can take away from Paul's priorities here in his defenses. So a few lessons. First, Paul, his example shows us that, you know, he demonstrates that he puts effort into eliminating stumbling blocks that would undermine his gospel message. He doesn't respond with, you wouldn't get it, or he doesn't fight anger with anger or false accusation with false accusation could do that but he doesn't and paul also an important note he doesn't just plead innocence falsely things would have looked a lot different to the romans for sure if paul's defense was well yes your accusations are right i did break the law but your laws are dumb they're overbearing they're unlawful why can't gentiles come into the temple but this is not how it goes luke the author of acts seems to make pains time and time again over the last few weeks and for the next few weeks to emphasize and be very clear that Paul is innocent. He is legally innocent. The Roman Tribune, he gets this in his letter to Felix. He says, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So Paul is innocent, and that's an important piece. So Christian, what are you concerned with? Your own reputation or the reputation of the gospel? And that's not a trick question. Paul demonstrates that both matter. Both matter. We have no business putting anything in the way of our gospel proclamation. N- we have no business putting anything in the way of a gospel message. And so we should work like Paul to have a similar uh, similar reputation in the world. But don't mishear me. Don't mishear me because we can swing that pendulum way too far. The gospel message is not a message that is universally accepted. Look at the situation Paul's in. His life does not say that uh, he just dodges every bullet and lives the happy life. He's in prison, trial after trial, defense after defense. And so don't take this idea that our reputation matters uh, to be that you shouldn't share the gospel because it may offend. Paul doesn't want to put anything in front of the gospel as a stumbling block, but the gospel itself can be a stumbling block, and that's okay. Paul unapologetically proclaims the good news. The last few verses that we read there, he's talking about the, the Jews from Asia not being there. They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoings they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day says i'm not on trial because i stirred up a riot i'm not on trial because i disgraced the temple i'm on trial because i believe the gospel and that centers on the resurrection so we considered last week right, look what paul says a few verses earlier verse 15 having a hope in god which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust now, this is, in itself, an abrasive message. Right? The resurrection of the just and the unjust. Right? The message of the gospel confronts us all with our sin. God created us, humanity, in his image to glorify him, but we all, as humans, we turned away. We turned our own way. We lived for our own glory, not for his. And this turning away from God was not a slight miscalculation or slight misdirection. This was direct Rebellion, this is direct rebellion against God. God is perfect and holy and God is just. So our rebellion deserves a punishment and that punishment is death. And so apart from the gospel, the news is bad, it's bad news. The news is bleak. We have no hope apart from the gospel. We have failed and we continue to fail every single day. You might be hearing this right now and thinking, ah, that's a abrasive message. Yeah, it is. This is what I'm saying. The gospel itself can offend. Listen, there's good news. It's not just bad news. The gospel means good news. There's a reason why it's called good good news. And it's not through earning our salvation, through right living or good works. We can't possibly pay the debt that we owe. But God knew this. He's perfectly just, but he is perfectly merciful. He made a way for us who are hopeless to have a hope. This is why it's called the good news. He sent his son. Jesus to live a sinless life, sinless life, a life that we could never live, die on our behalf, paying the debt that we could never afford. And then his righteousness is credited to us in exchange for our wrongs. As we celebrated uh, on Easter and every Lord's Day, Jesus rose from the dead. He demonstrated that the debt was paid, that we could be made right with God by believing in him and turning from our sin, accepting this free gift of grace. And this is the key. It's a free gift of grace. We, we don't get it by working for it. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so it's a humble admission that we are hopeless and honestly dead in our sin. And this is why it's abrasive. This is why it's offensive. Who wants to admit such a fault that we have no hope apart from Christ? I mean, My nature isn't even to admit i get lost when i'm driving i I don't want to admit any fault of my own let alone admit that i am completely helpless apart from christ that i am deserving of eternal judgment and so paul defends himself so that he can proclaim this message his defense his personal defense is a defense of the gospel we see that this is paul's agenda he defends the gospel and he shares the gospel That's our last point, share the gospel. Let's read the rest, uh, verse 22 through 27. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. He's procrastinating. He pushes pause. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs After some days, Felix came down with his wife, Drusilla, this is who I was talking about, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. But when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So Paul is left in prison, prison with privileges, but prison all the same. He's left in custody. And so we can ask a question, is this where Paul, the frontier church planter missionary, is most effective? We might not think so for this guy to be stuck in prison, but this is exactly where God has brought him is part of god's plan and so paul doesn't waste it he doesn't sit there twiddling his thumbs, saying oh wait till i can go plant my next church or wait till i can go uh share the gospel with thousands that that's my typical audience no he says i I can't waste this time i need to share the gospel and who's his audience here well felix the governor we see felix he's as we talked about a wicked man but he's a people pleaser he wants to appease the jews so he keeps paul in prison he procrastinates we don't even know if uh, Claudius Cilicius, the tribune, never showed up. He didn't need to show up. He gave him a letter saying, uh, uh, to my knowledge, this guy's innocent. Right. So Felix, uh, he he knows that Paul's innocent, so he can't decide the case. He can't condemn him to anything, but he keeps him there because he has this selfish motivation. He thinks uh, he can appease the Jews, and he thinks that Paul is going to pay him. Right. He's waiting for some kind of bribery. So Paul stays in custody for two years, but we see in those two years, Paul models that as Christians, we must trust God in whatever circumstances he puts us in, and we must share the gospel in the best of times and the worst of times. He shares the gospel with Felix and his wife, Drusilla. Now remember, Felix is the guy that has the power to release him, right? I don't, uh, maybe you'd be thinking of your own thought, like, man, maybe, Maybe I can flatter this guy and I can get out of here. You know, maybe I can help out around the place. I could, you know, get out of here. But what does Paul do? No. It says he speaks about faith in Christ. He speaks about faith in Christ. He shares the hope that we can have that as a sinner, Christ has paid our debt. Right? And he he doesn't soft pedal. Right? He calls for repentance. It says, as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Man, that's a, he's not just kind of giving this self-help message. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the guy that's keeping him in custody. He doesn't say, keep living your truth, Felix, you do you. No, he says, repent. Believe the gospel. Turn from sin and look to Jesus. Jesus. But again, a call to repentance is not in itself an attractional message. And so Felix, he turns Paul away. That wasn't the last conversation that Felix had with Paul. And we can uh, assume if we know anything about Paul that he kept beating that same drum, that he kept sharing the gospel with Felix, uh, with really whoever would come into contact with him. And so we, we can take a note out of that. You know, our platform might not look like the platform we want. But we need to share the gospel with whoever's in front of us, whoever God's put in our life, whether we're preaching to thousands or we're preaching to one. We share about the hope that we have. And so if you're a Christian and you're listening in this morning, share the gospel. Don't simply share a self-help message, but call those that God has placed in your life to put their hope in Christ. Call them to repent and believe the best news in the world. Dig into the unsearchable depths of the gospel in your own heart and let the, the overflow of that, let your own gratitude turn into sharing that hope with others. This is not new application. We, we've you know beat this to death through the book of Acts. Share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel. Right, we exist to glorify God by showing and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. But we need to share this hope that we have There are people around you who don't know this message. And so pray for boldness to share the gospel. And if it isn't received, that's okay. Evangelism is not how many people you can convert. You can't convert anyone. We talked about God being sovereign, God being in control. It's good that we don't have to rely on ourselves to to convince somebody to believe the gospel. We need to simply present the gospel. And God does the heavy lifting. Only God can open hearts. And so simply share this good news with others. And so if you're not a Christian and you're hearing this this morning, my exhortation to you is don't respond like Felix. Don't respond like Felix. I get it. Being told that we are hopeless can be alarming. But sometimes alarms are good things. You know, think of a smoke detector. Right? It's noisy. And now they have flashing lights. They're, they're annoying on purpose. They're alarming for a reason. They need to alarm you of trouble, of danger. This is what Paul does. He says, man, there's judgment coming for the just and the unjust. It would be unloving of me to not tell you that. And So if this is an alarming message, that's a good thing. But consider these claims. Consider these claims and look to Jesus. Investigate these claims. Don't respond like Felix. Now, will all your problems go away and all of a sudden everything just looks peachy and easy? No, but I can assure you that your biggest problem in the world, the biggest problem in the world is sin and it's been solved in Jesus. Felix lets other things stay in the way of him responding to the gospel. We see idols. He wants a bribe, so he's after money. He's worried about his reputation and therefore he's worried about his career. Don't let money your career or your your reputation, anything stand in the way from responding to investigating these claims. Repent and believe in Jesus. Please reach out to us. If you have any questions, if you want to follow up this conversation, we would love to have this conversation with you. We're so glad that you're listening in. And so please reach out to us. Reach out to whoever invited you. Reach out to uh, whoever shared this. Uh, Join us on the Zoom call after. We would love to share about this hope that we have. So as we considered from the beginning and throughout, God is sovereign over all things, even your circumstances, and he's sovereign over your evangelism. We are left with Paul again in prison. Is this a bad spot? We can be tempted to think that this is a bad spot for Paul, but God is in control. This is working towards his purposes. Paul trusts in God. Trust in a God who is in control. He does what he can. He shares the hope that he has with whoever is with him. He shares that we can be made right with God. And so this morning, you may feel a lot like Paul. You may say, I'm in a bad spot. I feel like I'm in a bad spot. I mean, it can be tempting to think so, but God is in control. This is working towards God's so trust God defend the gospel share the gospel and pray that God's will would be done We're going to respond in a second by singing that song your will be done and I want to just highlight the one verse Because I feel like this is what what Paul could be really saying And if, if you're in that uh, prison of your own mind if you're feeling like you're in a bad spot Pray that this would be uh, true that we could all uh, sing this and say this confidence in a God who is sovereign the verse goes like this when I am lost when I am broken in the night of fear and doubt still I will trust in my good father yes to one great king I bow let's pray God we need your help in all things it is so easy for us to slip into wanting to run our own lives, wanting to, to run everything, really. But God, we need you. Help us to trust in your sovereignty, the fact that you are in control. God, give us courage to defend the gospel and give us boldness to share the gospel. God, impact our hearts more today than yesterday and more tomorrow than today of the richness the fact that you sent your son to die for us to pay the penalty that we deserve so that we could be made right with you. You are so merciful. So God, I pray that that would be the fuel for us, that we could look to you, trust you with our whole hearts, with our, our entire lives, and that we would share that hope with others. God, I pray if there's anybody listening that does not know you, that you would open their hearts. God, we pray that your will would be done. I pray this in Jesus' name.